the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. Today we'll talk with a regent from the University of Colorado, a member of the Pac-12 Conference. We'll discuss the kinds of athletic issues that trustees are concerned about in certain cases. In this case, my guest has been proactively advocating for concussion research and safety for many years, even inserting the issue in the search for a new head football coach at the University of Colorado. She has serious reservations about college athletics dependence on football and its revenue streams. The Daily Camera, Colorado Boulder student newspaper, wrote in 2019, quote, ethical questions increasingly haunt every institution and individual associated with football, and the University of Colorado Board of Regents is no exception. Research demonstrates the serious and sometimes fatal effects of repeated blows to the head of the kind football players routinely experience. And this is partly why one of the board's own members, Boulder resident Linda Shoemaker, has expressed grave concerns about football at CU. It's unconscionable in my view that we continue to play this game as part of the academic enterprise, she told the camera editorial board last month. Shoemaker has pushed her own colleagues to confront difficult questions about football safety, unquote. Joining us today is Linda Shoemaker. The University of Colorado Regent has devoted the past 20 years to advancing quality public education in Colorado. A University of Colorado Boulder alumna and former journalist and attorney, she was elected president of the Boulder Valley School District Board of Education and was the founding board chair of the Bell Policy Center, a nonprofit think tank committed to making Colorado a state of opportunity for all. Shoemaker has lived in Colorado since 1963. She earned a bachelor's degree in journalism and a law degree from the University of Denver Law School in 1982. I'm joined by Linda Shoemaker. Linda, welcome to my podcast. Thank you, Karen. I'm happy to be here. Excellent, excellent. Well, after uh, a very um, lengthy career at as a, a regent at uh, the University of Colorado, uh, the four campuses, you reminded me, not just Boulder, but there's four campuses, you've now decided to step down. So can you walk us through how a, a regent gets elected at uh, CU? Absolutely, it's an odd structure. There are only four states in the United States where regents are elected. Um, it's in our original constitution. There are nine regents for the University of Colorado system, and we are elected by the people. The way it works right now is we run either from congressional districts or at statewide, depending on how many congressional districts and statewide offices we have. So we serve overlapping terms, six-year terms. Uh, so two of us are rotating off the board or up for election. Um, three of us every two years. Okay. And you run from a particular district. Is that right, District 25? My district is two. District two, two. is centered in Boulder, Colorado, where I have lived um, for pretty much 50 years. So I know the town really well. I know the university really well. But an interesting thing is that I never knew the football part of the university until I became a regent um, in 2014. 
So before we go into that, just to explain to us the other three campuses that the regents are also responsible for. Yes. We have a medical school campus, um, the Anschutz Medical Complex uh, out in Aurora, Colorado, a suburb of Denver. That ha it's a fascinating campus because it has three hospitals co-located along with the medical school, nursing school, dentistry, et cetera. We have a children's hospital and the veterans hospital. So our students out there have a tremendous uh, opportunity. We also have a downtown Denver campus and a Colorado Springs campus that are smaller than Boulder. But Boulder is the only one with football. And do you uh, move your, your regent meetings around to the different campuses so that the regents can see the campuses and how they're changing? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Every, every meeting, we're at a different campus. We meet uh, multi-day meetings every two months. And then sometimes in the interim, and we also operate a lot through our committee structure. Okay. Uh, currently, I am the chair of the University Affairs Committee, which also includes athletics. Okay. So let's, let's go into to football. It's one of the reasons I reached out to you today was to learn more about what you've learned as a regent about Division I college athletics. It's been a fascinating journey. Uh, I was never a football fan. In fact, I would probably be able to count on one hand the number of games that I had attended uh, in my entire time of living in Boulder. It's not a huge football town the way some places are. Of course, the university athletic department gives regents uh, tickets that we report. And so we have four tickets and my family was using them. I would go occasionally, but for me in the beginning, it was just social. I enjoyed being with different family and friends and donors um, and other regents for sure. But I, once I started paying attention to the games, I started being very concerned. Uh, and my concerns were guided by a man named Bob Carmichael, who lives in Boulder, former CU football player, former NFL cameraman and Emmy Award winning cameraman, as a matter of fact. So he started talking to me and opening my eyes to the reality. He is very opposed to the way we are playing football now and believes that it is still causing brain damage. And I agree with that. I, I just do not believe that it can be played safely the way we play it in the Pac-12. Um, so I spent a lot of time talking to people in the athletic department, uh, observing football practices, reading books on football to try to understand as best I could what was going on. And the athletic department is convinced that recent changes in the game, changes in helmet technology, changes in the way players are uh, practicing, that those things are significant enough so that the game is safe. And frankly, 
that's not true. Mm -hmm. It's not safe. And it is not compatible with the academic enterprise, which is why we are region. But that's, I have an outlier opinion. <laughs> that is not the opinion of the Board of Regents. No, I, I, I totally understand that. So as you've been uh, learning more about the, the uh, opportunities and the challenges that college football brings, how do you how do you weigh that out in terms of the revenues that are brought into the department, the kinds of um, social opportunities that you mentioned earlier at games and the chance to meet other folks who might be donors and and also to to sort of champion the Colorado University brand? What do you think about that? Well, we have a lot of rabid fans and a lot of uh, former CU students who are very supportive of the team um, financially and, and uh, in every way. Our majority of the board right now are Republicans and uh, it's a 5-4 Republican Democratic split because we do run as from a party and they are generally speaking uh, in favor of uh, the way the game is played now. Uh, I am concerned about the finances and also the reality of what these players face. It, we have built a Taj Mahal uh, for them and they are in a cocoon all day long. They rarely interact with anyone other than other student athletes because they take their meals in in the palace um, they do their training there they just move as a cohort through the campus uh, they are well taken care of they love the game they love playing uh, they do not appreciate my interference however i think what we find is that former players you know such as the um, union that has been organized and Ramoji Uma, the athlete's advocate, I, I believe everything uh, that they have to say more than I believe my athletic department. So how does that manifest itself at, at uh, Regents meetings? I assume some parts of the meetings are in public. Do, do you ever end up getting into some public discussions about your disagreement with how the athletics department is is portraying this absolutely i mean everything is a public meeting uh, unless it is uh, specifically exempt under colorado law such as legal matters personnel matters um so i i've been pretty careful about the statements that i have made about football the very first one was in june of 2018 and I had been the vice chair of the board during the previous year. I felt that during that period of time when I was really making my decision about where I was gonna be on this issue, that it wouldn't be appropriate for me to speak up uh, while I was vice chair. So I waited until my very last meeting and I talked about the risks that I see in football. And I thought that one of our roles as a regent is to look to the future and to help the university avoid risk. I, I talked about the financial risks 
the reputational risks, and the legal risks. Um, I also talked about the, a player's bill of rights that I would love to see. I'd love to see long-term health insurance, uh, six-year scholarships, so they can really get a good education because when they're playing football 50 hours a week with their practice and everything, they just don't have time, in my view, to get as good an education as many of them would like to have. Um, but my biggest concern is the health and safety of the players. And the fact that I believe that every game creates harm to every player's brain. It's not just concussions, and that's where I part ways with the athletic department. They would say concussions are the problem, concussions are what lead to CTE, we have a good handle on concussions, you know, take our players right out, we don't let them play until they get a doc doctor approval. But of course, all those doctors are in-house. They work for the University of Colorado. Yeah, that's a real that's issue. Yeah. Embedded in the athletic department. That's a real issue about whether who's there advocating on behalf of the the future of the athlete who's injured. Whether it's not it's not just about this game or this season. It's about what are they going to look like in 30 or 40 years. And if the doctor is under the control or direction of the head coach, that can create significant conflicts of interest. I absolutely agree with you. Although, again, that's a minority position. Right, right. Um, I, I spoke out again uh, the next time in December of 18 when we hired Coach Mel Tucker. And he is the current football coach, head coach. He has a terrific reputation. He seems to be doing well. However, I find far too much emphasis on winning from him and too little on safety. You know, in CU has had 12 losing seasons, probably 13 now, and three winning ones in the last 15 years. You know, we keep hiring and firing head football coaches. We uh, keep paying them out because they're the highest em paid employee in the state of Colorado. He makes three and a half million plus. Um, and we've, we just keep, keep making the same mistakes. Um, the problem with this coach, in my view, is when he first talked to the press, he said, our team will be physical. My dad always told me the name of the game of football is HIT, HIT, H-I-T, HIT. And so he, he talked a lot about toughness. He said, it's going to be the way we live. We're going to live tough. We're going to eat tough. We're going to practice tough. It's going to be who we are. Now, I understand being physically and mentally prepared for the game, but there is too much emphasis on physicality in, in our team. We have had too many former players with CTE. We have had too many former players commit suicide. Um, and I do not believe that we have as safe um, a team as we should have. 
So there is actually uh, someone, maybe it's yourself, keeping track of the number of players who've been diagnosed with CTE and or committed suicide? Absolutely. Absolutely. Bob Carmichael is the expert here. I can put you in touch with him. Okay. I, I would be very appreciative to see that list. I think that's important for other regents or trustees to, to be aware of that there are people uh, who can get them that kind of information if they start to have some of the same questions that you do. Absolutely. And I hope that other trustees will, will wake up more quickly than I did yeah. uh, and start talking about these issues. I was apparently the first Division I trustee to publicly question our, our, football, our football program. Yeah. It's so ingrained in the culture that it's difficult to go against it. We've built an entire higher education system around the concept of gathering people together on game days, football game days, to bring the community together. And that's uh, in total opposition to what's going on, on for the players uh, who are experiencing, um, you know, potentially life-altering uh, injuries that once they leave us, whether it's done, they're done with their eligibility or they graduate, as universities, we don't pay a lot of attention to them. And, and that's part of the crux of this issue of, of looking at taking care of athletes. And, and it's not just about pay for play. It's about the whole continuum of their, of their life going forward because football is a very, very tough game. It's the most dangerous sport that we play in colleges or high schools. Uh, in the United States. I think that we should be doing flag football before high school. I think all the high school rules need to change and that that will, fil that will filter up. But those, those changes are gonna take a while. But people are waking up to this issue. Um, national polling is showing that 75% of people in the United States, adults, believe that football causes brain damage. So we've come a long way in the last, in the last few years with um, the Boston University coming out with um, so many <clears throat> concussion-related, CTE-related studies and, and various players donating their brains so that they can be autopsied. Because the problem with CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, is that it can only be diagnosed after death. Although there are lots of players right now who believe they have it and who are living with the problems that it causes before death. Yep, there's no doubt about that. And I, I have heard through several sources that there is a, you know, a great push in the medical industry to try to find a blood test that might be able to identify uh, early CTE. And I, I think that's a game changer for, for football at that point. Absolutely. Yeah. And, we, and then, it, then there would be a lot of calls among trustees for that testing to be done. So it, it, in some ways, it's just a matter of, of the uh, science catching up with the sport into to a, a way that is uh, in real time for folks to realize what those who've studied the issues with um, concussions, and we know they're not just limited to football. I mean, they, there have been concussions in, in gymnastics, there's been concussions in soccer, there's been concussions in ice hockey, but 
I think fundamentally that, that the idea of concussions is going to change quickly. And I guess because higher education has relied so heavily on that game day experience to bring their communities together, how does higher ed then uh, respond to the real-time information that, yes, this player just incurred a concussion? Well, I think, I think the problem is too much emphasis on concussions, to be honest. I believe that the research shows that it's the brain rattling that happens inherent to the game of football. So a pl players collide at high speed. Even if their helmets are not hitting each other, even if they don't hit the ground with their head first, their brain is being rattled because the brain floats inside the skull. There's a, a, between the skull and the brain is fluid. And so the brain rattles quickly back and forth on these hits. And it's that constant brain rattling that is causing the degeneration in the brain that causes CTE. Yes. So while my athletic department is holding firm to the line that it's only concussions, I do not believe that. And the reason I don't believe it is because an amazing doctor, Dr. Jeff Victoroff, an MD, professor of neurology and psychology at the University of Southern California. He sent me his book, a 900-page medical school textbook that he edited on concussions and traumatic encephalopathy. Uh, it was published less than a year ago. And he sent that book. I actually skimmed through it. I went to LA. I met with Dr. Victoroff. And he convinced me, you know, here's what he says. He says, the last decade of research mandates a paradigm shift. Every child who plays a season of football experiences thousands of dangerous brain rattlings and probably develops permanent brain injury. I think you bring up a really good point because when these uh, athletes arrive on our campuses to play football for us, it isn't the first time they've been playing football. For some of them, they've been playing football since they were four or five years old. So right. the cumulative effect of what they come to campus with is significant. And yet we probably don't have any baseline tests of seeing where they are when they arrive on campus. Correct. We yeah. don't. We don't. And, you know, the easy thing to do would be, for instance, for the Pac-12 to decide that they weren't going to recruit players who had played football before they were in high school or at least before middle school. That would be helpful. Yeah, that could be a, a really bold statement because there is a push to try to get people to play non-contact football bef before the age of 14, flag football, those kinds of things. Many, yeah. many states are going to pass, pass those laws. I would hope that it would pass nationally uh, because we'd need a level playing field there. Uh, I, I just worry so much about these players. that I just feel like they accept the physical risk of playing football. And they think, oh, maybe, you know, I might have brain problems when I'm 50 or 70. But they think that's such a long ways away. But it's not. It's not. 
Yeah. I mean, I have talked to players who are living with these problems, and it's you know, um, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. I, I am sure it is. Um, when you talk to the football staff and you know uh, others who are you know, ob obliged, I would say, to listen to you because you're a trustee, you hold a, an important position on the campus. What kind of response do you get from them when, when you express your concerns? <laughs> I get a lot of lip service in, in private, and I've had many meetings in private. Um, we had a little summit with the president um, this fall, and uh, the athletic director, Chancellor of that campus, et cetera, and I intend to do that again now that the football season is over. Um, they believe that they are running the safest program that they can, um, but I, I disagree with that. I just think the best equipment, the best protocols, all the rule changes, we have even more spotters in the stands, I think, than anybody else, but that just can't protect our students from traumatic brain injury every season. Yeah, the spotters in the stands are only uh, good when, when after the play happens, not before or when, when the play's in route. So that's, that seems kind of, um, you know, just a token kind of uh, experience, I would think. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So does the, does the, do the CU Regents have a safety committee? Is that something that you created or is that something that was there and then you joined it? How did that work? Um, we, it's interesting because we, because we are over four campuses, the and the chancellors run the campuses. They're very independent, each chancellor with each campus. So generally speaking, we're involved in uh, policy and uh, legal matters, hiring and firing the president, uh, all the budgetary matters that are under the purview of the regents. But we really don't, in general, worry about a specific program on a specific campus. So, but athletics is unusual in that it's what brings presidents down <laughs> nationally. And, where the scandals and problems occur. Uh, so we have uh, traditionally spent time on athletics. I wouldn't call it a safety committee, but we have, okay. you know, uh, concerned with athletics. And now that we, we've um, consolidated our committees, so athletics is under university affairs, which I currently chair. So okay. uh, I would like to have um, a more balanced, presentation to my team uh, that where I would pick people who would come and we'll see if that happens. Um, so far what we have had is just the athletic department defending itself, insisting that it keeps our players safe, insisting that concussions are the problem uh, and insisting that they care, which they do care. They do care. And there is a big effort on mental health care. We have a group of former CU athletes who have banded together to try to help each other and to help current players. But I still don't believe that they understand the risks. And 
you know, another big problem, frankly, at schools like ours, um, Colorado in general is a pretty white state with Hispanic as our second uh, minority. We have, only, I think, only 5% Black or African-American in our state. And then now we have a team that is primarily made up of African-American players. Hmm. And they often come from parts of the country where football is king and they have been treated like royalty. And that is very heady. Uh, they do get, they get scholarships, but in my opinion, they don't get enough money. A lot of them can't afford to go home for Christmas or have their parents come to graduation. So we definitely need to increase the amount of support for our athletes. We need to worry about long-term health care for our athletes, um, at least in this interim time period where we're still playing the games we are doing. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. They do have a student athlete assistance fund that athletes can ask for one-time expenses and things like that. But you're right, it's a, it's a different um, environment. And, and what does that mean when you're an African-American player, just African-American student just walking around on campus? Do people automatically assume that you're then a, a, a football player or an athlete in the athletic department or do they see you as a student? No, they assume they're an athlete. Right, right. And um, we definitely have other African-American students um, and professors but who are not athletes, but um, they, it, yeah, that's the, that's the assumption, and yeah. that's unfortunate, and it becomes a civil rights issue, frankly. You know, when you have a stand, the stand full of 50,000 um, cheering 90% white people, um, and we're cheering mostly black players beating each other up on the field. Mm -hmm. How, you know, I, I can't, I cannot condone that. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and it sounds like you've raised your voice uh, quite often to have most of what you're saying fall on deaf ears, and I have to imagine that's been pretty frustrating. It is, but I only have one year left on the board, and after that period of time, I'm going to be free to speak my mind um, in a way that won't uh, hurt the university. I, I do believe I have to be careful uh, because I have a fiduciary obligation right now to the university, and it's a, it sometimes tears me in two different directions, for sure. So let's shift um, for another um, idea on what's been happening at Penn State. Uh, as, as most people know, Penn State went through a horrific um, scandal, I would say, with Jerry Sandusky, the former assistant football coach. And now we have a, a former football player who has uh, accused the members of the football team of sexual hazing and then accused the football staff of turning a blind eye to it and forcing him out. Do you have any thoughts about that and, and what your sense is of that kind of thing that might or might not happen at a school like CU? I think that's a very brave player, former player, a very brave man, and I commend him because I am, I'm 
sure that things like that happen at Penn State and that they also happen at the University of Colorado. And it's unconscionable, it's, um, but I, I think we're abusing these players and more and more of them are gonna start speaking up and that's what, that's what we need. We need the players speaking up and the former players speaking out and people listening, you know, people need to start listening to these players. You mentioned the word cocoon earlier, that the team sort of travels around in a cocoon. And um, I'm, I'm believing that, that these cocoon-like atmospheres can enhance these opportunities for hazing and other kind, kinds of personal violence. What's your take on that? Absolutely, absolutely. And we find a lot of uh, sexual violence against women um, coming from those kind of hyper-masculine environments uh, on our campus, the uh, football team, the fraternities, uh, even though we have actually kicked our fraternities off campus, um, they're, they're still a factor. Uh, so if you, you know, if you track the complaints to our uh, reporting, you find that there are a greater number of football players, revenue sports players, football and basketball and fraternity players that have been accused of sexual assault. Well, Linda, I really wanna thank you for your time today. I think you've given us an awful lot to think about and I appreciate your uh, advocacy on behalf of uh, athletes who sometimes don't feel like they have a voice in the process. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Karen. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining us for another week of thinking about college athletics from the 30,000 foot perspective. In case this is the first time you are joining us, the podcast drops every Thursday morning. You can listen to previous guests and topics on eight different podcasting platforms, including iTunes and Spotify. Each week, I strive to give you a deeper understanding of the complexities of higher education and athletics in the 21st century. Please also join me on Forbes.com for additional content and extended analysis. Have a great week.